All right, well, I'm going to start with a story. I actually think I, re- I might have read this about three years ago. Um, it's not overly funny, but it's interesting, and I like it. Uh, it's from a book for, by Sky Jatani. Uh, what if Jesus was serious about prayer? He's got these little excerpts that make you think. He's got a couple books like that. So here he goes. A few years ago, Sky Jatani says, I was invited to speak at a large trade show where suppliers of new technology and next-level theatrical equipment showcased their products to church leaders. I was asked to speak about the future of ministry. The event organizer specifically asked me to discuss trends and research related to young adults and how churches could better engage them. Part of my presentation included a survey that asked young people, what has most helped you grow in your faith? And the top response from millennials, they're not the youngest anymore, right? But at the time, the the top response from millennials was prayer, prayer. And when I revealed that answer, there was an audible gasp in the room that I hadn't anticipated. Sensing the surprise from the audience, I decided to take things a step further. Do you know what's great about prayer, I asked the ministry leaders? It's very affordable. (laughs) That got a laugh from them as well, but not from the conference director. When I came off the main stage, he was livid. He explained that the goal of the event was to sell this new equipment to churches so they can create bigger and better experiences. My presentation, he said, was not appreciated by the vendors. This will give you a little insight into Sky. I explained that I was invited to speak to the pastors and not the vendors and to present data about young adults not to sell smoke machines. Sky says, I have not been invited back. But he goes on to say this, the incident illustrates one of the core dilemmas facing consumer Christianity. It always wants to produce, package, and sell communion with God, but this agenda relies upon people believing communion with God requires some special knowledge or some special skill that they don't already possess. But Sky says a new generation is discovering a dangerous truth. There is no substitute for the simple practice of prayer. There's no substitute. And he says prayer is accessible to anyone, anywhere, anytime, and only one thing is required, love. That's what Sky says. So that'll get us thinking about the seriousness, the importance, the necessity of prayer this morning. We're going to look at a parable in Luke chapter 18. It's the beginning of Luke chapter 18. And I want to set it up this way because this is unusual for me. Normally, when I teach a parable, I want you to sit with the discomfort of not understanding what Jesus is saying. I mean, a lot of the parables Jesus tells are meant to disorient us. Throw us off our feet so we rethink things. Rethink that he's teaching us about this unbelievable character of the true king of God. And he's teaching about the unbelievable upside down dynamics of the kingdom of God. And he tells these parables and a lot of times people don't get it. And I'm usually okay. If you don't get it, that's fine. A lot of people didn't get it the first time. But wrestle with it because you wrestling with it to get it will be part of how the spirit drives it into your heart so you do get it and you live in light of the truth. I like to teach the parables that way. Even this week in our our small group, we're in Matthew 22 and we're going through this really, it's a really fun parable of the great banquet and and this wedding and and people not coming and they're invited and so inviting others and somebody comes and they don't have a wedding garment is a great parable. And the guys in my group are all like, what is he saying? 
And they look at me like, pastor, answer me. And I'm like, I'm not telling you, no. So we spent a lot of time, it just, and it was a good group. And they're just wrestling through. As they say, oh, I can't be saying this. Maybe he's saying this. And we spent, and then we got, I think we got there. I think we got it. But we, we got there together. We worked on it. But you have to wrestle with it. That's normally how I like to approach a parable. But I can't do that today because Luke won't let us. So you'll see the first verse we read, Luke's going to tell you what the parable's about. Thanks, Luke. That's great. But here we go. You know what we're going to talk about, though, right? So Luke 18, verse 1, here's how he says. One day Jesus told his disciples a story, a parable. Why do you say it? To show that they should always pray and never give up. That's what we're going to talk about. You and I should be people of prayer, continuous prayer. What does Paul say? Pray without ceasing. We should always pray and never give up. Your translation may say never lose heart. We should always endure, always persevere. But there's a little bit more. So we actually want to read the parable, right? It's in there. That's the point of it. But let's read the parable because there's, even, there, there's things that will add to this. It will situate it for us. Now, Jesus has been, if you look at Luke 17, he has been teaching a little bit about this, his second coming. And there's always this, these questions about why, why is the world the way it is and when is Christ going to come and set all things right? You know, and there's, how, do we, how do we endure? How do we persevere as we wait? So he tells this parable. There was a judge in a certain city. And this is important to Jesus. He's, this is not a long story, but he's going to say this phrase twice, which tells you it's very important for understanding what he's doing. So we'll spend some time with this as well. This judge neither feared God nor cared about people. You immediately have a sense of his character. He has no fear of God. He doesn't care about people. He's got some other motive we could guess, but it's not that. And there's a widow of that city, a widow. widow. Widows in the first century were very vulnerable. Not a lot of power, not a lot of social status, just very vulnerable people. So, so here's a woman who's got nothing that she can leverage to get her way. And so she comes to the judge repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. Vindicate me. Vindicate me. And the judge ignored her. You could say dragged his feet. He doesn't, maybe, maybe, it, maybe there wasn't enough incentive, enough money. It was, he didn't think it was worth his time. But he ignores her. And finally, he then says to himself, and here we hear it again, I don't fear God or care about people. Jesus wants you to know that. But this woman is driving me crazy. She's driving me crazy. And I'm going to see that she gets justice. Because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. It's almost literally she's beating me up. I'm black and blue with her constant requests. And then the Lord, then Jesus said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Learn a lesson from this evil judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. And here's the big contrast, and we'll talk about this. Here's the big, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. So don't you think how much more, right? Don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? To his people who, who pray, continue. To people who, who don't give up, they continue to pray every day. They pray. Even if they don't know how to pray, they pray. Even if they don't want to pray, they pray. Well, don't you think God will give them justice? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. You say, it doesn't feel quick. Well, this is we're waiting for his return. And that's, Jesus then says, this comes with challenge. And I hope you kind of feel that. I'm going to challenge you to pray today. 
It comes with challenge. Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, that's one of the ways he refers to himself. When the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? How many will have the faith of this widow? How many will be praying people? It's, it's, it is, I think, you can, only those who are praying people will have a healthy soul to endure, will have the strength to persevere. We're going to talk about prayer this morning and perseverance. We'll start by talking about perseverance, enduring hearts, endurance, never giving up, not losing heart. There's a few questions that kind of come up as you read this parable. Will God respond to pleas for deliverance from his people? Jesus says, yes. But then he flips it around. But will his people remain faithful? It's a challenging question. It raises the question of God's delay in bringing justice. How many of us wrestle with that? I'm dealing with this. God, why haven't you brought justice? We wrestle with this in the parable. One thing it doesn't do is give us an answer. It doesn't give us an answer. It just tells us how do we move forward. It urges us to be prayerful, to be faithful, to live in constant confidence that God will act, to believe and trust that God will vindicate you. You may have to wait for it, but it will happen. And again, Jesus, we'll talk about how Jesus is always our model, but that's Jesus goes to the cross, allows evil to do its worst to him, knowing that he will be vindicated. And he is. He's vindicated by the Father. God will vindicate his people, so don't grow weary and don't give up. You know, the earliest church, many, many, many people wrestled with this, and many New Testament authors tried to help the church work through this. In 2 Peter, Peter wrote this, Do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but he is patient with you. He's not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I got a little story here. I thought it was funnier than it is, and I thought about not doing it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to persevere because you just laughed more than first service did when I finished the story. So, The story goes that an economist once read these words and got very excited. Lord, is it true that a thousand years for us is just like a minute to you? God says yes. Then a million dollars to us must just be a penny to you. God says yes. Lord, would you give me one of those pennies? It's not even the punchline, but I like that you're helping me out. God says, all right, wait here a minute. There's the punchline. I have learned if I downplay my jokes, they're so much funnier. I don't know. Thank you for that. I was like, man, I totally bombed first service. But In other words, we often want the penny, but not the minute. We want what we want on our timing and not his. And we conveniently forget that his work in us while we wait is as important as what it is we think we are waiting for. Waiting means that we give God the benefit of the doubt that he knows what he is doing. We wait, we persevere, we endure, and we are challenged. We hear Jesus' question, will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? 
Will his people endure? Instead of becoming weary, will we find the strength and courage in Christ to be steadfast and faithful and always remain ready? It's a powerful question. The author of Hebrews also says, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. I'm a runner. I've never run a marathon, but I've run a lot. And I know the start of a race is fun. Oh, so fun. I can go so fast at the beginning of the race. The end is hard. It's really hard. But you don't get the glory unless you finish the race. I've never run a marathon, but I've talked to a lot of marathon runners. And Dave Finley's back there on the computer. He's in my small group. And his son, Jeremiah, ran the Chicago Marathon. Many of you know Jeremiah. He ran the Chicago Marathon last week. And after the race, Jeremiah posted... On Facebook, I think, the people who say your adrenaline will carry you the last five miles aren't telling you the truth. (laughs) To finish well, it takes endurance. It takes perseverance. Well, even I'm going to give you some really practical things on prayer at the end. Talking, I know it's hard. I know in the world that we live in today of technology and entertainment, I know prayer is hard. But we got to do it. I mean, in the same way that last week, and I know this was good news for our church, in the same way that I said last week, your soul needs joy and your soul needs gratitude. Your soul also needs prayer. Do not deprive your soul of prayer. You need prayer. And if I read Jesus' questions correctly, I might say this, but you won't persevere if you don't pray. And you won't endure if you don't pray. Because you can't do this apart from the Spirit of God holding you up. Because your adrenaline's going to run out. And the race is going to keep going. (laughs) We've got to be a people of prayer. The New Testament will call this this virtue endurance or, or perseverance. And I want, to talk, I want to say, perseverance is the virtue by which we become increasingly able to honor commitments that ought to last a lifetime. I think that's something that we are slowly forgetting as a people today. Some of you older people are like, amen. <laughs> Honoring commitments that we make for a lifetime, right? It's especially the ability to honor commitments when honoring them becomes difficult, And Christian virtues are essentially characteristics we see in Jesus. That's what makes it a Christian virtue. If it's a Jesus, it's a virtue. If it's something we should imitate in Jesus, we should probably do it. It's a virtue. And so I could tell you that we endure because Jesus endured. And often people will talk about the crucifixion and Good Friday and what Jesus endured for us on the cross. Or even as I was, you know, just thinking through the New Testament and the way they talk about persevering and enduring, and I I couldn't help but go back to 1 Corinthians 13. I love 1 Corinthians. I've preached on it a bunch. Maybe I'm trying to redeem it. It's not just marital love. It It is love. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul, I believe, is reflecting on the life of Jesus and describing what he saw. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 is the closest we get to a word definition of love. And Paul almost says more of what it's not than what it is. If you want to know what love is, the ultimate definition is the person of Jesus. He just is. He is the embodiment of love. But 1 Corinthians 13, if, just a refresher, this is what Paul writes. Love is patient and kind. 
Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. And this is what verse 7, this is what drew me to this passage. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Love never fails. So why do we endure? Why do we persevere? Because Jesus does. Because that's what love is. Love endures. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Love, love we are called to endure by faith times of confusion. We are called to persevere in seasons of doubt. You will have seasons of doubt. Everyone does. Some are stronger than others. But, but we are called to persevere. And what I love about our church is some of you have traveled through seasons of confusion and doubt, and I've seen you persevere. We, we are called to endure in loneliness. We are called, as we're talking about prayer, we're called to, to persevere in seasons when it feels like we're only getting unanswered prayer. We're called, our soul needs us to hang in there in prayer and to endure and persevere. We, we, we persevere when all seems lost. And it's possible, because, again, because, because, and I'll introduce you to people who are doing it in our church. I don't have to fly you to a conference. They're here. They're enduring in difficult seasons. I don't know if you've ever picked up the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you have young kids or grandkids, maybe you have. If not, it's pretty cool. I'll talk about a few kids' books today. But I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible has this refrain of God's love. And this is what it says. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's a great translation. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Endures, never fails. So that's what we're called to. And the reason that's possible is because it's just a little fun with words. If we have enduring hearts, we have an endearing God. We have a good, good Father. And in the parable, Jesus is, I think, having fun. He has no problem contrasting the Father, your good, good Father, with an unjust judge. I mean, the judge is standing for God as he's talking about prayer. Who do we make our request to? But this judge is about as unlike God as possible which is the rhetorical point of the parable. If even an unjust judge will vindicate a woman, a widow, who keeps coming to him, how much more will God answer the cries for vindication for his people? Right? How much more? Your God is so good. I do think Jesus is, is, is sharing this to, to teach us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. But even as I was reading it, it probably is even challenging to some of the people who are there who are listening, who, who have a wrong idea about who God is. I think part of why he's being so extreme is because I think it's pretty easy sometimes for people to think God is a merciless judge. Maybe you've even felt that from time to time. Maybe you were taught that before. I think to many listeners in Jesus' day, God resembled the callous judge in Jesus' story. But Jesus is insisting otherwise. Unlike the judge, God has 
an unbelievable tolerance for our requests and demands. Keep bringing it, keep bringing it, keep coming, keep coming. Especially those that support the cause of his kingdom. And I was thinking about this contrast and even how, whether it's from from poor teaching or just different upbringings or even we go through difficult times and We take emotion pretty seriously here at Crossview. I think God gave us emotion. Emotion is what moves us, emotion. And we see emotion even used as describing God. Emotion is a real thing. But one of the things I like to remind us of is emotions are horrible leaders. They're great windows, great windows into what's going on and what's moving, but they're horrible leaders. And if you're not paying attention, sometimes your emotions will start dictating what you think is true about God. There's all kinds of things that get in the way of us having wrong views about God. And we've, we've heard about who God is in Jesus, but other things can distract us. Even as I was wrestling with this contrast, this, this unjust judge and, and this good father, I was thinking back to C.S. Lewis's marvelous work, The Chronicles of Narnia. I don't care how old you are, read these books. <laughs> I love these books. In fact, it's, it's October, so I was even thinking about one of my favorite costumes that my son Jay ever was was King Peter from Narnia. <laughs> I love it. I got pictures of him, his plastic sword and a shield with a lion on it. Narnia is King Peter. I love his stories. If you don't know the stories, C.S. Lewis has done a masterful work of creatively inviting us, really, in his way, into the gospel story. And he has this character named Aslan. There's these animals that talk alongside the humans. And he's got this character named Aslan. And Aslan, he really represents Jesus. I was even, as a parent, I even encourage you, if you have young kids, to read Chronicles of Narnia to your kids. I mean, if they don't get into it, whatever. But but there's a good chance your kids will get into this. And I was thinking some some of the deepest conversations I had with Jay at a young age about Jesus were around Aslan. He could connect. He could understand that at his age. He could get excited. When we, we would read in the books and, and Lewis would say, Aslan is on the move, we'd get excited. What's Aslan going to do? Well, when you get to the seventh book, the reigning king of Narnia in the seventh book is Tyrion, and he's heard about, he's king, he's heard about Aslan. He knows the stories. He's heard, he knows Aslan, is he safe? Is he, he's not safe, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. In fact, that even generates throughout the books a little bit. He's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion, they say. You get this contrast, though. He's, he's, he's power, but he's also so approachable, so gentle. Like, so you, you, can, you can draw close. One of my favorite stories in there, too, is Su- Susan and Lucy, two of the girls, are, are rolling around in the grass with Aslan, this, this gigantic lion just on the hills in the grass. And Lewis says they, they didn't know if they were playing with a thunderstorm or a kitten. I love that. Is Jesus a thunderstorm or a kitten? I, I, I know you, you wrestle with that, right? Well, in book seven, two new characters are in. I mean, Lewis is kind of having fun with the book of Revelation at this point a little bit. You've got this kind of this false witness that is this ape. And this ape takes advantage of this somewhat gullible donkey and he finds this lion skin and he puts the lion skin over the donkey, but he keeps the donkey at a distance and the ape becomes the voice of Aslan. And he starts commanding all these things and the people are confused because it doesn't sound like the character of Aslan, but he's not a tame lion, they say. He's not a tame lion. 
Now Tyrion is really the king of Narnia, and Narnians are being sold into slavery. Grabs your heart if you're in the story. They're not Narnians. And, 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 the, and the great forests of Narnia are being cut down. And there's this beautiful scene where, where Tyrion is, he's like wrestling with what he knows to be true about Aslan and what he's hearing in these rumors, what, he, what he's feeling around him. And Tyrion says this, maybe you felt this way. Would it not be better to be dead than to have this terrible fear that Aslan has come and is not like the Aslan we have believed in and longed for? He said we would rather die than find out that Aslan is not actually good. He says that finding out that Aslan is not reliably good would be as if the sun rose one day and it was a a sun without light. And there's unicorns too. I told you it's fun stories. But his unicorn friend, Jewel, says it would be like drinking water and it's dry. It doesn't quench your thirst. And Jesus is going, if you think God is like an unjust judge, he's not, he's so much more. You're not praying to an unjust judge. You're praying to a father, a father who loves you. In Luke 18, Jesus is presenting a parable of contrast. In our prayers, we may sometimes feel like the widow. We may feel alone or powerless, a victim of unfairness, disregarded, the least and the last person in line. But the truth is the opposite. We have both an advocate and a direct line to a loving father who has nothing in common with the insensitive judge in the story. Nothing in common. And maybe sometimes God seems slow to respond which is why we are called to endure and persevere. And we may suspect a lack of concern. It may feel that God doesn't care. But Jesus corrects the misconception, pointing beyond how we may feel to an assurance of God's mercy. This is just who God is. It's what he does. If even this widow gets justice from a heartless judge, how much more will God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? So maybe for some of you, you need to do some thinking through of, have I been taught wrong? How do I get God right? Well, you look at Jesus. What is the clearest revelation of who God is? Jesus. What does God want to say to us? Jesus. And he does, God becomes human to make it as clear as possible so that we can't miss it. And then what does Jesus do? He teaches us, this is who God is. And this is what God thinks about you. And this is what God, in fact, watch, this is what God will do for you, right? God has nothing in common with an unjust judge. So don't lose heart and don't give up. Let me press a little bit farther. I was trying to think through some misconceptions we might have, maybe things we've been taught that are wrong about God, or, or because we've gone through difficult times, maybe, we, maybe we've allowed our feelings to dictate who we think God is rather than what God has revealed to us in the person of Jesus. So I just picked three. There's way more than this. But the first is sometimes we may start to think that we need to prove ourselves to God, Right? to perform for him, to, to earn his favor might be one of the more classical ways to say this. And you start to feel that way. You, you might find yourself saying things like, 
To get, you may say to God, I've often felt like I, I'd be abandoned by you if I, if I wasn't trying hard enough or I wasn't doing all the things perfectly. And maybe if you've ever felt that way, you, that's exhausting, God. And you're scary when I see you that way. I'm afraid of you. And if that's you this morning, I, I want, God says to you, I know he says this because Paul says it in the end of Romans 8, there is nothing that will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I want you to hear that this morning. If we've been talking about the last, if you have enough faith to turn to Jesus, if you've put your faith in Jesus, there is nothing that will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If you need a picture, Jesus in the Gospel of John will say, I've got you in my hands, and the Father's got you in your hands, then we're not going to let you go. This isn't on you. Jesus has, has put it on him good news. Or maybe you say, I'm afraid to draw near to God. I'm I'm afraid to be vulnerable with God because he's so busy. I mean, billions of people, God's so busy. What are my little prayers? What, What does God care? God doesn't care about me. I am the widow at the end of the line. God doesn't care about me. You need to know that that God wants to hear everything you're feeling and thinking. He may even already know it, but he wants to hear it. He wants to hear it from you. He wants to hear your worry and your sadness. He wants to, he wants to hear your fears and your anxieties. He wants to hear what you're excited about. And what you're, God wants to hear it all. And actually, even as you open up to some of the ugly things in your life that you don't want to talk about because you're afraid, it actually, as, the more you open, the more God draws near. It doesn't push you away. You draw near together. Prayer, persistent, it draws you together. You don't have to be afraid that God's too busy. In fact, what did I preach on a few weeks ago? Just re- if you are in a season where you feel like God's too busy for you, read Luke 15. Just read it and read it and read it. Because Jesus says, I've got 99 sheep, but you're lost. I'm coming after you, and I'm going to find you. Or the story of the prodigal. The father's doing stuff, and he finds out the prodigal's coming home, and he stops everything and runs to him. God is not too busy for you. How? I don't know. He's God. I mean, that's part of the mystery, but he's not. He cares about every hair on your head, Jesus says. I mean, listen to what Jesus is telling you about what the Father thinks about you. He loves you. Or maybe you think you're just, you're too bad. You're, you're too dirty. You're too unworthy. You will never please God. Maybe you find yourself saying, I, I, I just feel like God, I feel like you're disappointed in me or you're disgusted with me. I feel unlovable. I just feel like I'm filled with shame. And I say this all the time, Crossview, but I know God would say that you need to know that you are loved right now. God loves you. That you are his workmanship. He is an artist and, and you are the work of his creative love. He breathes life in you and he delights in you. You're his symphony. You are not disgusting to him. He loves you. Paul says, while we were dead in our sins, and in the Jewish worldview, you can't be more unclean than be dead. That's as unclean as you get. While we were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. 
If you wrestle with feeling unworthy, I like to say from time to time, value is determined by what somebody is willing to pay. Christ gave his life for you when you were dead in your sins. That's how valuable you are to Jesus. That's what he's willing to pay. He didn't go looking for bargains and he didn't bring coupons to, to Golgotha, right? You're valuable to him. You're valuable. Or I even like, I mean, I just read through the Gospels and, and I think we can get a mindset like the Pharisees of like, I'm clean and, and, and somebody else is impure or, or they're clean and I'm impure and, and my, my impurity is going to contaminate them. But Jesus never thought like that. No one contaminated Jesus. Jesus went up to all the unclean people and all the wrong people, and he was never contaminated. His love overwhelmed everything, and he cleansed them. So don't think you can't bring your dirt into the presence of Jesus. You can't clean yourself up. You need Jesus to do it. So draw near to him, and prayer might be the best way to do it. You can do it anytime, anywhere. And you don't need to pay any money to do it. It's free. Draw near to God. God is not like the unjust judge. He loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So don't think just because you haven't gotten yeses, God isn't listening. Don't think that. Just tr trust and we persevere and we endure. And, you, and, and what we know what you, what you can know as a Christian is you will be vindicated. You will be vindicated. But in the meantime, we wait. And we don't lose heart. Because we know who God is. He's just like Jesus. He is everything that Jesus says the Father is. So we've talked a little bit about this enduring and persevering. And we've talked about how God is nothing like this unjust judge. He's a good and merciful and compassionate and loving Father. But as Luke says, this is about prayer. It's where I started. That's where we'll end. How do we wait? How do we endure? How do we persevere? We pray. Praying is a necessity for a Christian to persevere. And in the same way that I said we endure because Jesus endured, we pray because Jesus prayed. If you need another reason, if Jesus prayed, and if you want to be like Jesus, then you pray. We talk about the spiritual disciplines here, and the disciplines are just the things that Jesus did. Prayer is not an option. It is emphatically necessary. And again, I think the nature of Jesus' final question, will the Son of Man find faith? If you don't pray, it's a warning. If you don't pray, you won't persevere. You can't do this without prayer. So I want to say a little bit about learning how to pray because I think it takes practice. And the last thing I want to do is preach a challenging message on prayer where you judge yourself and think I'm no good at that and then go home and live in shame. Does that sound like good news? No, that's not what I'm trying to do. The disciples are constantly learning. I have had to learn and I am still learning how to pray. You might think, oh, you went to seminary. You're a pastor. You are just gifted and inherently great at praying. That's not true. Now, I'm very comfortable praying out loud. I mean, as some people aren't. I am, obviously. But, but I'm, I've learned, and really the last seven years of my life since I went to prayer school has catapulted me in prayer. Because, and I teach this at Formed. I'm sure I'll do Formed again in the spring. I if, you if you haven't gone through Formed, plan, maybe make, go through it. We'll go through how I pray, or if you want to meet and just kind of get some beginnings, I pray kind of a combination of very organized and structured prayer 
and also very uh, organic and spontaneous prayer. I, do, I could do a combination of both. I start and end with structure. I mostly pray, I pray prayers of confession. I mostly pray psalms, prayers from the Bible most of the time. But I pray, I, it's, it's like it's, many of you know we were out west and we were hiking this summer, the Kinnit family. The Kinnit family is not overly adventurous in, in any sense that we would ever go off the path into the unmarked woods. We just wouldn't do it. We would get lost and die and you would find a new pastor. That's what would happen. So we stay on the path. Why do we stay on the path? Because people who know where they're going have gone before us and carved a path. And when we're on the path, it's freeing. We can enjoy everything. Do you see that bird? see that waterfall? Are we lost? No, we're on the path. People who know have gone before us. And so I pray prayers of people who have gone before me who know how to get into the presence of God. It's very important for my prayer life. I start and end with that. But in the middle, I'm very spontaneous. I have requests. I I bring my requests. Every day, I bring requests to God. I ask things of God. I sit with Jesus. I acknowledge that he's here, that he sees me. I remind myself of who I am in Christ. I'm, I'm still learning how to pray. Some of you may need to find some good trails to walk. You can it's never too late to begin a healthy prayer life. And if you want to finish the race, today's the day to start. (laughs) We've got to be a people who pray. Now, what are some of the challenges that we face in modern world that we live in? I kind of picked out three things that that I could say more, but the first thing I want to talk about is distraction. Because when I, when I pray, in the middle of my prayer time, I just sit with Jesus. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite times because I don't expect anything to happen. I just sit with Jesus. And I, 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 I told you if you were with us on Ascension Sunday, I pray Christ above me, Christ below me, front behind, right? I remind myself of Christ's presence all around me. I do that on a daily basis. It's important. I'm drawing near. I'm acknowledging Jesus is there. I pray that. But sometimes then as I'm sitting there, I get distracted. <laughs> and have you ever get distracted? And I used to beat myself up about that. I, why am I, why can't I, I'm a pastor. Why can't I just focus on God? I want to pray for more than five seconds. What's wrong with me? And then I read this. If your mind gets distracted 10,000 times in 20 minutes of prayer, then think about it as 10,000 opportunities to return to God. And so I do. I start praying. I get distracted. I'm not praying. Oh, Jesus, and I'm back, right? And I don't judge myself. I'm just back with Jesus. Because we're, we live in a world of constant distraction. And I want to say this. Some of you are learning to redeem technology. Technology in and of itself isn't bad or good, but, but what we do with it matters. And I would, I, would, I would challenge you to think through, is the technology in your life fostering a life of prayer that you need to endure and persevere, or is it inhibiting a life of prayer? And if it's inhibiting, you've got to make some changes, because you will not persevere if you don't pray. Now, there are ways, if you are a technology, you just love, you, there are ways to use technology to foster a prayer life. I'm happy to talk to you about it. You can. I don't care if you use technology, but prayer is the point, right? That's the whole point. If technology is getting in your way, then you need to make some changes. But the second thing that then happens, right, is, well, I get bored. Okay, let's just throw it out there. 
Prayer is boring sometimes. That's actually why I like my little structure, because when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm praying, my structure gets me going. It gets my engine going. But sometimes if I'm just sitting there with Jesus or just running through a litany of requests, sometimes I get bored. And I mean, prayer isn't always the most exciting thing, especially in the world that we live in and what, the way we're formed. But one of the things I tell Jay all the time as a dad, and then I tell myself as a prayer, is that it is, it is essential that we become the kinds of people who make wise decisions when we're bored. It's really important. If you can't make a wise decision when you're bored, you need to step back and do some evaluating. What is going on in my soul? That every time I'm bored, I can't handle boredom and I make an unwise decision. Or I choose entertainment over fellowship with God. Just step back and ask some questions. Maybe you can think of boredom during silent prayer as an act of purification. Right? We want to be purified. We want to be redeemed. In an uneventful moment of prayer, think about God purifying you from your idol of having to have good feelings and being entertained all the time. And so instead, I I feel bored. Oh, it's awesome, God. I don't need to be entertained right now. I'm bored. It's you and me. You're doing something in my soul. Now, I know that's that's not as exciting as like watching some cool new movie, but I'll tell you what, prayer's way better for your soul than any movie you'll watch. We need to be a people. Pray. And then finally, I got to wrap up here, but finally, I'll just say this quickly. I know sometimes they're like, well, I start praying and then I fall asleep. So what? Let me ask you, what parent or grandparent doesn't love it when that child falls asleep in their lap? Don't judge yourself. Jesus is thrilled. You fell asleep? Awesome. We're together. What a great way to fall asleep. What a great nap, right? We need to be a people who pray. Jesus says if we're going to persevere, if we're going to endure, if the Son of Man is going to find faith when he returns then his people will be a praying people. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, it is, it is wild. I mean, maybe we just pause for a second. It is wild that you are the most important person ever. You're the most powerful person ever. You are I'll do another week of bad grammar, the goodest person ever. And we have access to you all the time, anywhere we are. And we don't even need our cell phone to have full batteries to talk to you. I mean, just in our head, we can start talking to you and you hear us. We can be We can be living very, very righteous and wonderful and God-honoring lives, or we can totally have derailed and gone off the track, but you're just waiting for us to come home. You're just always there. I mean, we talk about all the gifts that you give us. I don't know, is is there a better gift than this, this immediate access to the Father anytime, anywhere? Would we not take that for granted? Would we recognize the value of prayer, that our soul needs communion with you, God? Make us a praying people. Surprise us. Be there when we're bored. Welcome us back after every distraction. And do some miracles and give us good news. I mean, we'll take it all, Jesus. It's a long race. 
We want to run this race with you, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of prayer, for the promises that you've given us. In your name we pray. Amen.